Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. These sort of 70s ideas were very interesting to me about feminism. How do you pass in the world of feminism if you're a man, and how do you pass in the world of black maleness if you're a woman, a white woman? I just think it was such a marvelous period of, of deep confusion and energy. Hi, I'm Raihan Salam, and this is The Vice Podcast Show. I'm joined today by Hilton Alls, a critic for the New York Review of Books, The New Yorker, and author of a new collection, White Girls. <laughs> Hilton, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you for that presentation. <laughs> my, my pleasure. Yeah. So, Hilton, um, I should mention that as I was reading your book, mm. uh, I was often on the subway, often in public, and mm. there was something about having a book, the title of which, uh, as a kind of colored man, mm-hmm. uh, a book titled White Girls, and then on, on this half, you see the word mesmerizing. Yes. There was something about this presentation that uh, put me um, <laughs> ill at ease. <laughs> and, I wonder, and I wonder about the origin of the title. Oh, you felt, um, you felt marked by the, by the book. Um, the title for the book came about um, one day when I was walking with a friend, and we started talking about the number of people I had written about, I said, oh, one day I'm just going to write a book called White Girls because there's so many of them um, that I've written about. But when I started to think about the title, there was a deeper resonance, a more autobiographical resonance um, started to uh, bubble up. And that concerned the first piece in the book, which is called Tris Tropique, and hasn't been published before. And it's about um, largely my relationship to uh, a woman who's passed away, but was the figure, really the emotional figure, the white girl that appears a lot emotionally in the book. Um, she's Latvian from New Jersey and my oldest friend, and I just adored her. And she, <clears throat> I don't think, identified with her whiteness in a way. I mean, most of her friends were men of color. And I just started to think about what it meant um, for that person to transgress in that way. And once I started thinking about her, the rest of the book started to fall into place because each of the characters, or white girls, if you will, had transgressed in similar ways, sometimes negatively and sometimes positively. When I look at the cultural landscape of America and of New York now, compared uh-huh. to what it was like when I was a child, one thing I 
Did you I grow find, up here? I did. I grew uh-huh. up in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and one thing I find is that the idea of a white girl as a particular kind of category, right. as something that has some kind of cultural valence, is a lot more meaningful now than it would have been before when the category was a kind of blank, a kind right. of absence. Uh, and I wonder if you've seen that too, if you feel as though it's a, it's a category that has yes. some more richness and meaning now. I think that I, I completely agree with you, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful observation that you're making. Um, when I'm older... I think, than you, and, um, and I grew up in Brooklyn as well. And one of the ways in which white girls as a title started to um, feel significant to me was because when I worked in fashion, they, they would always refer to the black models as the black girls, and I never understood what that meant. Um, would you then say white woman or, to dis- or Asian person? I mean, how would you make those distinctions? So when I was... A kid, it was almost a sort of derogatory term um, to sort of minimize um, importance. But now that the world has changed and so many white girls are heads of the family, have demarginalized themselves through the workforce um, and various ways in which power um, has been accrued, I think it has a much more tense meaning and also uh, more descriptive. Um, meaning about power. Um, You are still female, so how much power do you have? But you are white, so you can pass in the larger world. That said, I don't think the book is about that so much as it's about the white person or white girl's marginalization and how sometimes that desire to pass into the larger world or the status quo can be a dangerous thing. Because much of the theme of the book and many of the characters in the book are people who have a complicated relationship to that status of being Uh a white girl, uh, are not necessarily universally identified as such, yet who aspire to it. And that's what's so striking because you're talking about a position of marginality, of weakness, of kind of, of preciousness, of the idea of being placed on a pedestal, yes. yet it's something that these people, uh, that, that some of the people you describe aspire to. So why would one who does not naturally, quote unquote, belong mm. to that category, uh, long for it and, and aspire to manifest it? Well, because I think of the past perception that it was the next step up from being colored or male, for instance. Uh, I think that, that aspiration I think people always aspire to the thing that they feel has more freedom or more privilege. And I thought, I just, if you read people like Shulamith Firestone, um, who talks about the white woman's identification with black men, these sort of 70s ideas were very interesting to me about feminism and how, how, do you, how do you pass in the world of feminism if you're a man and how do you pass in the world of black maleness if you're a woman, a white woman. So I wanted to mix those genres up while using that idea that Shulamith Firestone had laid out in her book um, and that Eldridge Cleaver indirectly attacks in his book or, or actually attacks in his book. All of these ideas that I had actually grown up with as a kid because of my sisters who were politically involved, it was really important for me to sort of try to sort of extricate or at least kind of go deeper into those ideas about identification and mirroring. How do you become or how are you someone else's mirror? I don't think it's really possible, but it's very 
moving to me when people seek, seek to identify with someone not of their race or class, um, but based on emotion and narrative. Since the 1970s, it seems that <clears throat> when you're looking at feminist thinking, this has been a, a persistent theme, the idea of the divisions among women and the ways in which uh, some feminist thinkers have relegated uh, people who do not, you know, who, are, who don't fit this kind of classic uh -huh. educated mold to the margins. Do you feel as though the 70s do you feel as though that was a distinctive moment that you would like to see recaptured, just the kind of creativity, the thinking that was happening around uh, and, you know, in Firestone's work and what have you, just trying to draw these connections? Oh, I just think it was such a marvelous period of, of deep confusion and energy. Um, I think it was, a, I don't think the 60s were over in the 70s. I think that uh, the early 70s and to mid-70s were about trying to understand what had the groundwork of the set of the 60s imagine you know people were having sex freely because of the pill um, civil rights um, there was just this ex extraordinary explosion of ideas and bodies and I think that essentially in the 70s which is when I grew up um, you could still feel that there were these discussions primarily in the feminist world um, about the body and how does that um, how do those freedoms manifest themselves in daily life? Um, one of the things I tried to do, um, and I wasn't so successful, I don't think, um, in a piece I was trying, I wrote about Jane Fonda, was to talk about those ideas um, in terms of the split between black and white feminism and how emotionally Jane was a black feminist passing in the white world. She was able to do a lot for feminists and political causes because of who she was. What is it that made her a black feminist? Um, it was her emotional identification with the underclass and her actually adopting a black child who had been part of the Black Panther program. And if you meet her, it's something that you just feel. Um, she feels more comfortable uh, outside of power than in it. And the great dichotomy about her life is while she's had enormous access to power, it uh, gets fractured in some way. Um, so, but I, I didn't really, re I should rework work that piece because she would have been perhaps really great in White Girls, but it might have been gilding the lily a little bit too, too much to have Jane in there. Well, Jane Fonda is also a yeah. figure uh, for many number, you know, a familiar figure to many Americans for other reasons as well. For example, uh, for her workout videos, oh, someone yeah. who w transitioned from being Hanoi Jane to being someone who is in every American living room uh -huh. uh, on VHS. And I wonder about that moment you describe in the '70s. This moment where some of the sexual experimentation and political experimentation of the '60s became a more pervasive phenomenon. Right. It entered the suburbs. It entered the. It it kind of penetrated the society in a much more thoroughgoing kind of way. Right. And then, it was part of the national conversation. But then you have, years later, you seem to have this, 
this rewriting of history in which that goes away. So, I mean, these, these universes, these, these social worlds in which people were just becoming experimental, they were confused. Suddenly that confusion seemed to have faded away later on. And I wonder, how did that happen? I mean, how did Jane Fonda uh. go from being this kind of radical figure to being someone who is very much a, a part of this kind of commercial boom, this cult of the body, and these other things that were quite different from what you saw? I think that she would probably describe her radicalism as continuing through um, marketing, um, that one of the things that the, the reason she did the exercise tapes was to uh, support her husband's, at the time, um, Tom Hayden's um, political career. A lot of that money went into supporting his political career, career. So I remember her telling me that she talked to a black reverend, um, a radical, and he said that um, he said that the, the movement really needed movie stars too, um, that it was one way to get the message out. And if you look at early tapes of her uh, shows like Dick Cavett, um, she really doesn't talk about her career as much as she talks about what's happening out there. So I think what we're missing um, are those risk takers, um, those people who would be willing to talk about um, their history vis-a-vis current events. Um, I don't think that there are many people who are that interested in their own history, let alone what's happening now. When you, your life during that period, during that post-70s period, Uh did you see yourself and the people you were closest to as part of this uh, little diaspora of people who are still thinking in those 70s terms, surrounded by people who weren't? No, I don't think so. I think that... um, I've always lived my life with a great deal of hope, and the people that I'm closest to um, were very hopeful people. Um, I think that AIDS decimated my generation more than any other thing, so the hope that we lived with got pretty wrecked. Um, but again, that, that spurned another period of intense political activism, um, which I did not feel part of um, based on race. It was a it was a largely act up, um, and those communities were <clears throat> primarily white men. And so coming from where I had come from, come from um, in Brooklyn, which was a pretty segregated society, I was then confronted less with 70s ferment than I was, than I was with the segregation I had grown up with and ideas of the gay community um, were more romantic in my head than in reality. Um, so, As a kind of alternative know. to the segregated world that you had known in the black community, as something that was uh, in, in tension with it or in dialogue with it? Um, I don't think it was so much in... I think that there were attempts to have dialogue with it, but uh, uh, I just think it was actually a replication of the plain old segregation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm talking about it now because I'm trying to write about it, but it was a world in which dying bodies were the link between gay men, but I don't think that the political activism made black men feel closer to white men. I think that similarly, when the feminist movement became huge in the 70s, there were lots of black women who did not joined because they felt they had always been the head of the household. They had always had to be responsible. There was nothing against, they were not fighting against the patriarch. Um, in, uh, 
AIDS activism, the patriarch was the political system um, that wasn't helping to save gay lives, but they had never stopped to save black lives. So lots of things were being, were canceling each other out. So when you talk about black feminism, <clears throat> is it fair to say that it, it wasn't so much, whereas white feminism was about the patriarch and wresting power from the patriarch, right. black feminism was uh, somehow about broader social and political um, because causes? Of, because, of, because, of, because of black American history, mm -hmm. um, black men had been... Disempowered in various mm -hmm, other or ways. Or not really just not part of the... Um, not part of the family in that way. And so there was just this feeling um, that they had, black women had always been the head of the family or kept the family together or the idea of the family. So in a weird way, equating feminism with whiteness um, didn't really resonate as an activity for a lot of black women that I knew. It felt like an extracurricular activity in some way. Um, that was separate from the business of raising families. When you're talking about this universe in which you have a category of black man who is operating <clears throat> outside of the family, who is marginal in that sense, uh -huh. um, I'm curious about its resonances with some of the, the figures you describe in the book, uh, Louise Brooks, uh, some, of the, uh, some of the other uh, white women who were similarly marginal, do you see resonances between those experiences? Oh, sure, um, because uh, um, one of the things that I love about the people in the book um, is that there's no longer any pretense for them. By the time they speak to me or I'm writing about them, um, they're not dealing in the categories that we're talking about now. They're dealing with the sort of s struggle and the pain of just being human. Um, so I think when we have a title like White Girls, um, it's also a riff on titles that identify blackness in the title. So Richard Wright's Black Boy or um, Toni Morrison's Tar Baby or uh, any number of books that have, uh, or, you know, James Weldon Johnson's Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, any of those books that have titles that presumably identify the story. I wanted to do a, a title that would not really identify the story. When you were talking about Jane Fonda a moment ago, uh -huh. I was struck by this idea of marketing as uh, a kind of radicalism. And, and you'd worked in the fashion world for a very long time. Uh -huh. uh, and I wonder about your thinking about that world. Did you, did you see political resonances in the work you were doing and in, and in writing about the world of fashion? I think so. Figures? I think so at that time. We're talking about the um, early 90s, there was a lot of stuff that was going on that was very interesting in terms of the convergence uh, between uh, fashion and the way, and, politi and political um, activity. There was, for instance, a, a company called the Bernadette Corporation. Um, that really was trying to deal with kind of Marxism and style. Um, I think fashion editors like Camilla Nickerson at Vogue were doing tremendous, was doing a tremendous job at sort of bringing in politics and art um, in the world of fashion, giving us a context. I think she was brilliant in terms of contextualizing fashion in the everyday, and the everyday is about politics. Um, I think when we were doing Vibe, the first five issues of Vibe that I was involved with, um, it was very much in, about 
how does uh, how, do, how do various styles happen growing out of race um, or the narrative of difference? How does that inform style? How do we make uh, a sartorial world based on those differences? Um, I thought it, it was a very exciting time. So did that feel like a, a fertile moment, like the 70s in a sense? Um, I different think it was, from it, I but. think def- different, definitely, but I think equal to that in terms of um, excitement. And is that something you see happening again, or do you feel as though we've fallen very far away from that kind of... Oh, as I said, I'm a deeply hopeful, hopeful person, so I'm, I'm just enormously hopeful that, um, that this will happen, um, and that the changes that we've discussed in our conversation are ever growing and ever evolving. When you talk about the world of fashion and style as it intersects with politics, you've talked about people who are very explicitly trying to connect Uh these themes. But I wonder about certain cultural figures, uh, for example, a Michael Jackson, someone who in their very self-presentation raises lots of questions. Uh, I wonder, I mean, do you see that as political as well, if not deliberately so, just the way of um, introducing kind of new styles and, and sort of new forms of self-presentation, that that itself can be something that can enrich uh, and enliven the yeah, political I, conversation? I see what you're saying, but I think that um, politics has something to do with self-awareness, not self-denial. And I think that Michael Jackson in particular um, in the book is a study in self-denial, um, so that his style... Um, you know, his Judy Garland jackets and so on, Diana Ross kind of falsetto, was really sort of based on jettisoning um, who he was organically in favor of who he wanted to be. Um, I think that real style um, grows out of a deep desire to uh, express um, one's individuality without fear. I think he was a fearful person. Um, so I wouldn't use him so much as a figure. I think Andre Lantali is extraordinarily uh, fearless in terms of... Tell us a bit about her for some of our viewers who uh, might not be familiar Andre with her. Andre Lantali was the style editor, uh, style creative director, I think, of Vogue uh, for a number of years, and he's now running another magazine. Um, but he's a great sort of figure in fashion. He was a protege of Diana Vreeland's. Um, and he worked very closely with Anna Wintour for a number of years, and he's a great figure of style, um, I think, who's had to um, be very strong in that world um, because it's not uh, exactly known for its integration. Um, And one of the things that I've tried to show in, in my essay about him was the extraordinary amount of grace it, took, it takes to survive in that world and to get one's point across, and also to introduce, which is what Andre does as a great reporter, introduce people of color into that world. Um, but it comes at a price, which is um, a certain amount of alienation and um, pain, um, which you read at the end of the piece, caused by... Um, a woman friend of his, um, but I have nothing but respect for him and his, uh, I think, enormous grace 
in a world that uh, sometimes does not recognize that in him. When you talk about expressing individuality, I wonder, for you <clears throat> as a writer and as your writing has evolved over time, uh-huh. is that something that has always been a preoccupation, or is that something that as you gained freedom, uh, you know, uh, as you built a reputation uh, uh-huh. as a writer, that's something that you've been able to do more of? Um. I think that I've always been a contrary person, so I've always tried to do um, what what I feel writing allows us to do, which is self-expression. Um, and however that came out um, was going to be me. Um, that took many years to understand that that there was no filter between self-expression and what was on the page. Um, and so I think that the rest of my life I'll be spending trying to understand that immediate feeling and to convey to other people that immediate feeling of this is who I am and this is who I want to talk about and this is the way I see it. I had a conversation with a German friend recently. Uh, I'd referred to someone as a friend, someone I hadn't known for very long. Uh-huh. And uh, she was, um, you know, surprised by it and she just talked about how you know among Germans to characterize someone as a friend is uh, is a very serious thing it's a very serious thing it speaks to a level of shared history and intimacy whereas I think for many Americans myself included um, you know the idea of a friend I mean there's there's a broad universe it's it's more expensive it certainly includes people with whom you have this kind of very strong kind of intimacy and and others you know who who are more casual acquaintances and friendship seems to have been an incredibly important part of your life, yes, partly because, so. partly because uh, friendship has blurred into other kinds of relationship. Friendship has, you know, been incredibly central to your self definition. And I wonder, do you use the term friendship to refer to, you know, kind of casual acquaintances, or do you kind of are you very? No, I'm very. I think maybe I was German in another life because um, I take it very seriously. I think. It's been a more let's. It's been more consistent than lover. Let's say friend is a deep commitment um, for as many years as we can take it. So no, I don't use it very lightly at all. I don't have that many, and the ones I have, dead and alive, I cherish deeply. The first essay in your book uh, concerns. You mentioned one friend. Oh, There's yes. a Latvian woman. Yes. Uh, uh, Yet there was another friend as well. Yes. Um, and I wonder uh, if you could just tell us a bit about, given that friendship has come to mean a lot to you, and it sounds as though you expect a lot of your friends and you also give a great deal to your friends. Yes. When were the first friendships uh, in your life? I mean, did you form them um, you know, as a child, or was it only when you had a stronger sense of yourself that you were able to form oh. friendships of that kind of durability and strength? Um, I think that I was always interested in connecting to other people. We had a next-door neighbor named Teresa, who was a friend of my sister's, and I just adored her, and she's the, one of the first people to take me into the city, capital T and A C. <laughs> and um, I loved anyone who showed me the world, or a larger part of the world, and I was always interested in diversity. And so I just adored her, and I always fall in love with friends. Because she shared yes. the wider world with you and you saw that as an act of generosity. And I also, and I, also um, I always fall in love with people who are willing to show me something. Um, 
who, who can take me by the hand and say, look at this. I think it's the, the greatest act of friendship I know is to expose someone to something that they didn't know about. Including some other perspective. It could be uh, an experience that you guys, uh, something that is familiar to you both, but to kind of see it through a different lens exactly. is also very and Yes, because then you're, showing, you're seeing the world uh, through someone else's eyes and that person's eyes love you. So they're not only reflecting something new, they're reflecting love. Now given the, the, what you saw as the depth of this generosity, uh, you know, I assume you had an impulse to want to return something. And, and what was that in the case of these early friendships, the people who gave you something by exposing you to the wider world? Uh-huh. Was it your self-exposure? Was it that you were kind of sharing your perspective and insight? Or was there something else that you wanted to give them? Um, I, don't think it was so, I don't think it was so conscious on my part. I think or so it was transactional. Just, yeah, yeah, I think <laughs> I, it, was, it wasn't an ex- It was definitely an exchange, but it didn't feel like... Uh, commodity in some way. Um, it felt like trust, I guess that's the word. And when you have trust with another person, or when I do, uh, the feeling is limitless of wanting to share and to give, for me anyway. There's a Morrissey song uh, called Hold On To Your Friends. Have uh, you ever heard this song? No, but I love it. Uh, but so what he, does he say? So, so the, uh, the song, it's, um, it, the, the lyrics are, you know, um, but now you only call me when you're feeling depressed. Right. When you feel happy, I'm so far from your mind. My patience is stretched. My loyalty vexed. Ah, uh, you're losing all of your friends. No. So it's it's a it's well, a. Well, that's a pretty <laughs> self-absorbed friend, and I've had some of those too. And mostly, um, mostly our self-absorbed friends uh, show their true colors when they fall in love with someone. Um, that's always a drag. Um, but I tend not to really stay in relationships with people. Um, when, it, when the friendship is convenient for them, um, I like to be in it uh, for the long haul and for all the complications. Yet some of the central friendships of your life have been with people who really were incredibly loyal to you f- yes. for a very long period of time. Yes, and yet, I'm very lucky. Yet eventually that friendship was kind of withdrawn when a relationship had yes, or something that like that. Yes, that's true. And I that's very painful. That that must, when I wonder, because I mean, your expectation must have been given that the friendship had endured for uh, such a long period of time that surely it was robust it enough to... I think that that's a, that's a romantic expectation on my part that I need to minimize um, because I feel that all we have is each other, um, that it will go on. Um, but, but sometimes people can't do it. And it's a, it's a very sad thing to have to face um, that we are all made up of limitations um, and that one of the great things about having grown up somewhat is understanding that there was nothing I could do to change their feelings or their limitations, let alone my own. Can the friendship change? Can it move from one form that involves such a degree of devotion and energy and intimacy to another form or do you think that it's really one or the other? Uh, I used to be a one or the other kind of guy, but I think that I'm, uh, in my decrepitude, um, <laughs> beginning to understand that it can evolve and change into something else. As a critic, I wonder, are there writers who have felt like friends to you, people that you haven't known, people who have been long dead, but uh, who through your work you've connected to in that kind of a way and you've yes. returned to again and again? Oh, yes. Um, I love so many people. 
Um, Flannery Connor is someone you talk about in the book, uh, with great, yes. uh, with great uh, affection and, uh, and, and interest. And Truman Capote, too. Um, I think that he, he was a figure um, in terms of gay, cult, gay culture that was so profound and important. Um, what was it about Truman Capote that makes him uh, an important figure in gay culture, given that you know, he was not someone who openly identified as such? I mean, oh, because he was just so uh, transparent in his... Um, transgression of what quote-unquote maleness was supposed to be. At that time, um, a lot of people were aspiring to be Hemingway, even if they were women. And um, I think that his transgression had a lot to do with uh, his hyper um, swishiness and um, outrageous kind of defiance of the, of the norm. Um, I, he's a hero of mine in that way. Um, that's a kind of that's kind of life as politics for me. Um, uh, let's see other writers that I adore. Um, I learned a lot about Proust from Proust in terms of mixing up genres, uh, fiction, essay, and so on. Um, Jane Bowles is a big hero. I don't know how to write about her because she's so unique. Um, Jean Reese. I'm thinking about uh, James Baldwin. Um, Many of these writers are writers of fiction, and I wonder how you see your career unfolding, because one thing that's certainly true is that you seem you know, quite fearless and quite willing to kind of bare your soul uh-huh. in your writing. Uh, yet I wonder if, and you talk about mixing these genres, but do you see yourself moving in a direction in which the kind of fictional element uh, and fictional scenarios will become more central I to I think so. What do you think? Um, I think that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think, it, um, I think in some deep way, if, you, if I could manage a career writing criticism and fiction, I would be happy. Um, I think, but it's been, a, again, we go to this idea of evolution. It's been an evolution for me. I didn't wake up one day and say I want to be a novelist. I just woke up as myself every day working towards, subconsciously working towards other ways of writing. Um, I love working at The New Yorker because I'm given a great deal of freedom to think. And I like fiction because then I don't have to, rep- I don't have to interview anybody. I can just sit there and listen to voices. You know, when you talk, when you invoke your childhood uh, in segregated Brooklyn, Uh uh, yet now you're a part of some of our most celebrated august institutions, institutions invested with tremendous cultural authority. Uh Um, How do you feel about that? Oh, I don't think I have any particular feeling about it. I I feel fortunate, I think. Um, I don't really sort of look at the past and weigh it in connection to the present, or the future. I think I look at the past um, to understand context, and I never think of myself or my narrative as being a narrative that I'm following. It's just the stuff that happened. Um, So I think that my mother, who's um, no longer with us, would have been a more um, precise person for you to ask that question of because she would have seen the story in a different way. But for me, it's just really been about writing and how writing can get you from A to B to Z um, in terms of thinking. Um, So the writing has always come first, and the trappings uh, are uh, very nice. Um, But I think that 
the writing comes first. Now, I understand that while your book is a collection of mm -hmm. writings, you think it ought to be read as a whole. And tell us a bit about that, about what, what strands kind of draw it together. Well, I hope, um, I hope it's being read as a whole. Um, if you think about great books like um, William Faulkner's Go Down Moses, which was a series, seven short stories, and he asked that it be read as a novel. I think to understand the emotional velocity of the book sometimes can be um, confusing if it's cut up into different sections. Um, but I don't want the reader to feel that that should stop them in between reading. I think that the characters um, feel very novelistic to me, and so that's what I was asking for. Hilton, thanks very much for joining us. I really appreciate your oh, time. Oh, gosh. Thank you for having me. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.